Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Our Foundations podcast. My name is Joshua. I am the host of this show, and today's episode will be continuing on with the temptations of Christ. So in the previous episode, I got into the overview, basically, of the temptations of Christ and went into the first one specifically, where he is tempted to turn uh, stone into bread and eat it because he's hungry. And we went over all the issues with that temptation and where that comes from and what that leads to and kind of ended up with uh, the very last thought of the fact that that this was, in a way, a temptation to use his power for his own purposes rather than for helping others and glorifying God. And as we see throughout the Gospels, the power that God is giving Yeshua, and as well as getting past the Gospels into the New Testament, the power that he gives uh, his people in general, is to be used for glorifying him and for helping others. It is, uh, we do not see the example of it being used to solely help the individual that is given that power. That was not the only thing that got brought up in the last episode, but that was the final thing that got brought up. And if you want to tie this into previous seasons of this show, it's this whole idea of the kingdom of God being about God and others, to love God and love your neighbor. Whereas the kingdom of man, the church of woke, the state, these other groups that are outside of the kingdom of God specifically, these are movements and ideologies and institutions that are all about the self. It is about taking care of yourself, doing what's best for yourself, getting everybody else to do what's best for me. That is the goal. It's all about me. Whereas the gospel, whereas the kingdom of God is all about others, and it is all about God. So to move on to the next temptation, and we'll kind of tie these in a little bit, uh, it's, this is from Matthew chapter 4, verses 5 through 7. Then the adversary took him to the holy city and set him on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, jump. For the Tanakh says, he will order his angels to be responsible for you. They will support you with their hands so that you will not hurt your feet on the stones. Yeshua replied to him, but it also says, do not put Adonai your God to the test. So as with the previous temptation, Yeshua is tempted to use his power for a purpose other than helping others and glorifying God. He is tempted to use his power strictly for himself and for a cause that is not truly needed. Just as Yeshua did not need bread immediately or require only physical sustenance, Yeshua had no need for rescue, nor was he required to put himself in a position where he would. Though God can intervene in any scenario and save us from any consequences, we are not to put ourselves in a position to require this rescue and intervention. We trust that God is sovereign in all situations, and we may ask for his influence as applies to our circumstances, but it is never acceptable to purposefully and knowingly take an action that would, quote, force God's hand, as if we could anyway. To go against God's principles with the intention of then asking for his forgiveness and blessing would be to fail this archetypical temptation. 
This, however, is the modus operandi of the state. It lies, steals, murders, covets, and so forth, while demanding moral superiority and just authority. That is how the state operates. Let's get a quote from Mike Pompeo, the former United States Secretary of State and former Central Intelligence Agency director. When I was a cadet, what's the cadet motto at West Point? You will not lie, cheat, or steal, or tolerate those who do. I was the CIA director. We lied, we cheated, we stole, we had entire training courses. It reminds you of the glory of the American experiment. So that's just uh, to give you an idea of how the state works in its own terms. The state will often insert itself into a situation where conflict and immoral action will likely be required as events play forward. Often the state will desire to act as it wills without the repercussion of the resulting consequences, whether it be actions that instigate war or an economic crash, whether military presence or covert operations or bailouts or monetizing debt, the state is often participating in failing these temptations. It declares that the ends justify the means, and therefore it can pursue immoral actions and still be forgiven and viewed as a moral institution afterwards. It believes it can take action that would result in negative consequences for anyone else, but avoid these consequences itself just because it is the ruling authority. The state will often pass consequences of its own actions onto the citizenry. It allows citizens to live risk-free, knowing that the state will be there to bail them out and protect them, even if they live and act foolishly. Citizens often look to the state and its perpetual existence to maintain this perk of being able to wield the resources of the higher authority for their own benefit. Citizens will often shift the blame for societal issues from themselves onto the state. This relationship provides a false sense of being able to avoid the consequences of action, whether it be on an individual or an institutional level. It's kind of like this circle that happens where the state takes the consequences of its actions that it is knowingly taking, and it knows full well what those consequences are, and it pushes them onto the people, the citizenry. But then the citizenry takes all of the issues with the world at large and just uh, puts them, instead of uh, acknowledging that it is on them, that it is uh, they who make up the society they live in, uh, they just put these onto the state and say it's the state's fault and the state needs to do something about it. And so it's this circle where no one wants to take uh, responsibility for their actions. And that is something that this temptation is all about. It's about instead of taking responsibility for your actions, if Yeshua uh, jumped off and was headed towards the ground, the, the result of those actions, the consequences of that action would be to fall and hit the ground. But instead of suffering those consequences of the action of stepping off this high point, uh, the thought is that the angels will step in and save him. And that's just like us uh, doing something wrong and sinning and making these foolish decisions, knowing that there are bad consequences, but also knowing that, well, God's grace, God is mercy, God is forgiving, God is love, and he'll forgive me for doing this, so I'm just going to do it anyway. Uh, yeah, that's not how we're supposed to be. And uh, obviously, the state and the citizenry, uh, that cycle in the kingdom of man, that that is how it works on all levels in both directions. That is just the way it operates. It's not, it's not just this uh, random thing that happens. It's, 
it is the system. That's that's how it operates. So uh, moving on to the next temptation, uh, there are more we can draw out of all of these, but uh, I guess the majority of them come out in the overview and as we talk about these uh, various ones as we go on. So I'll stop there for that one and move on to the next. The next would be Matthew chapter 4, verses 8 through 11. Once more, the adversary took him up to the summit of a very high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world in all their glory, and said to him, All this I will give you if you will bow down and worship me. Away with you, Satan, Yeshua told him, for the Tanakh says, Worship Adonai your God and serve him only. Then the adversary let him alone, and angels came and took care of him. So this temptation is the ultimate, the means justifies the ends scenario. And uh, that was one that got brought up in the previous one as well. God had made it clear throughout the scriptures that the Messiah would rule over all the earth and be the king of kings, the Lord of lords. The adversary offers a way to achieve these God-ordained ends. The means, which would be bowing to the adversary, would obviously be contrary to God's directives, but it could be argued that this is necessary or practical or worthwhile when considering the ends that it will achieve. And this is not my argument, I am speaking hypothetically here. This principle is clearly and decisively rejected by Yeshua. The very existence of the state is the perfect example of this principle in action. God made it clear that having men ruling over other men is against his will. I'll repeat just a very short part of this uh, section I've quoted many, many times. 1 Samuel chapter 8, verse 7. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. That's God saying that them asking for a king and having a king or human ruler ruling over them is a rejection of God and is wrong and not in God's favor. And so uh, this is the idea, though. The idea of, of one group of men telling others what they can and can't do and forcing or coercing them to act in certain ways is clearly contrary to free will and voluntary choice to follow God's law or not. That's the free will that we all have. The justification is typically that government of this style is necessary in order to establish and maintain order in society. Hence, the means justifies the ends, even though the means are directly against God's principles. There could be arguments for a voluntary government or for the only rule being to, role being to protect individual rights without any infringement whatsoever or having governance without a formal government or ruler, but none of these are the reality of the modern state. So even though those could be hypothetical arguments for having uh, some sort of governance model, they don't exist currently. And so uh, that is not what we're talking about when we say the state or a modern government or even an ancient government. So we as Christians are also tempted to give in to this temptation. We are tempted to create rules, to restrict others, to gain status ourselves, to attain authority over others, and so on, in order to achieve God's goals for society. This may be carried out through being involved in the military or police force, or becoming a politician, or possibly just through voting. A vote is the act of attempting to have a say in how the state operates, who rules, and what is imposed on others. 
If the state itself is contrary to biblical principles, having rulers is as well, and imposing our beliefs in God's law on others is too. Then, using the state or its agencies to achieve God's goals is another version of the means justifies the ends argument. We may not use worldly and political means to accomplish God's plans, because clearly that is something that is against God's principles, and the means justifies the ends is not a valid argument according to Yeshua and God and Scripture. So the other key aspect of this passage is that the adversary is asking Yeshua to worship and obey him. The fact that this goes against God's principles doesn't really need to be explained, but it is worth highlighting that this is when Yeshua commands him to leave. So long as the temptations were suggesting actions that indirectly went against biblical principles, Yeshua simply denied them using scripture. As soon as there was a temptation to directly go against God and worship someone else, there is a severe rejection of the tempter and a separation from his presence. The state also seeks to be worshipped and obeyed. We are tempted to follow the religion of statism and patriotism, even though the institution is attempting to receive from us what only God is worthy of. We follow God alone and have no king but Christ. Part of this involves submitting to the state when doing so does not go against God's directives. However, if we are relying on on the state to provide for our needs, to serve the poor, to uphold the morality in society, to carry out judgment and justice, to rule over all and other such roles that belong strictly to God, we are failing this temptation. Yes, this means that these roles will be carried out to an extent by non-believers. Yes, this would entail anti-biblical policies and practices becoming institutionalized. Yes, this is wrong and will be judged by God accordingly. However, our role as Christians is to follow Yeshua's examples. We are to be like Christ. Even though rejecting Satan's offer means that Satan will rule the earth without Yeshua, and this will surely result in outcomes directly against God's principles, Yeshua still allows this to happen. He remains principled and pure and begins his ministry shortly after through individual action and apart from any connection to or use of the state. So this is the example that Yeshua sets. He could have taken over right then and there, and it would have meant that he would have had to go against God, and therefore he could not do that and would not do that, regardless of the practicality of the matter, that he could have ruled the earth and made sure that everything was ruled well, and that people were taken care of and protected, and there was no corruption, and there was no injustice. He could have done that then and there. But the means does not justify the ends. All of the temptations faced by Yeshua were a variation of the same theme. God has a plan and promises. Yeshua knows and believes this. Even Satan knows and believes this. Satan attempts to get Yeshua to use unbiblical means to obtain God's will. Yeshua refused to use his power to satisfy his own needs and denied himself bread willingly. Jesus refused to act in a way that would require angelic help. Yeshua refused to compromise his principles to gain rulership of the world. In the end, God supplies his needs. Angels come to assist him, 
and Yeshua is declared ruler of the earth with the future physical manifestation coming. These were all issues of power versus principle. There are always ways of using God's or the state's power to achieve goals for ourselves. Sometimes we even want to use the state's power to achieve God's goals for society writ large. Either way, if we compromise God's principles in the process, then we are failing the archetypical temptation by using unbiblical means to satisfy biblical ends. And that's the point of all of these temptations. It's, it's not about whether or not God's will will turn out to take place. It's, it's not about whether or not that will be manifested, because it will. And even the adversary knows this and believes this. It's about how we get there. What is our role in that process? What are the boundaries? What are the lines that exist there? And we see through these temptations that to a large extent, we are to let God carry out God's will. And God will sometimes use us. God will sometimes use uh, secular nations. God will sometimes use uh, people who would be considered enemies of God. This happens all throughout Scripture. I've covered this many times. God can use anybody in anything, and he will. He will make sure that his will does manifest in the end. That We will not have much of an impact on that. So he may use us as tools for himself and for his kingdom, but that is not something that that we are to try to accomplish outside of his principles. That is not to say we are not to try to accomplish these things. We are. We are trying to spread the kingdom of God to all the world. That is something that we as Christians are doing and are to do. However, we are to do that in a way that is purely and always in line with God's principles. We are not to use the state to spread God's word. We are not to use the state to enforce God's law. We are not to coerce others and force others to follow God's law. That is a free will decision. And again, that is all through Scripture. We are going to cover more on that, especially getting into the New Testament. That covers that aspect a lot more. So uh, this is all about what our role is as Christians. And uh, this specific section of Scripture with the temptations of Christ was all about his role in this world as partially a human being, uh, being a representative of God and carrying out God's will. How was he to act? And we are to mimic him. And so this is an example, not just of Yeshua, but of all who are to follow in his footsteps, all of us, his disciples, and so on and so forth. So I think that does cover the temptations fairly thoroughly, and uh, at least from this perspective. There's so much more you can get out of all of these, and there's even more scripture you could pull up and go to different places. But as far as this section of Matthew is concerned— in the context of looking at the theology of obedience, obeying the state, uh, but over that, obeying God. And what does it mean to owe nothing? Uh, does, uh, yeah, do we not owe any obedience to the state? Well, that is actually kind of the goal. And so, uh, and we will get to Romans 13 at some point, but that is specifically what is said there, that we are to pay respect where respect is due. And this is in the context of dealing with the ruling authorities, dealing with the state. We are to pay honor where honor is due. We are to pay taxes where taxes are due. But well, we are to owe nothing. And that is how it ends. You basically, you pay what you owe, 
in all these regards, but you should owe nothing. So that is the goal to owe nothing. It's not that we disobey the state. It's that we try to operate in a way where we don't owe the state any obedience. There's nothing for us to do um, in obedience to the state because we have separated ourselves from it to the, I guess, largest extent that we reasonably can. And that's the whole idea of the parallel society. That was the idea of the original church. That's the idea that, uh, personally, I have been trying to spread and live out myself. That's the idea of the kingdom of God. And that is the idea that is coming out from all of these scriptures. And uh, this will be something that will come out more and more as we get into the Sermon on the Mount. So, I am going to skip over some sections of Scripture, but not really all that much. We ended with Matthew chapter 4, verse 11 was the last verse I read, and we're going to pick up in Matthew chapter 4, verse 25, or sorry, 23. So I'm not really skipping very many verses, uh, 12 verses, I guess, something like that. And we will just pick up straight into the Sermon on the Mount And uh, as we get into this, there is going to be a lot here. And like I've said before, this will take up the majority of this season. There is just so much to get into here. We'll start off with the Beatitudes and go through the Beatitudes. We won't just pull from Matthew, but that's mainly what we're covering. But we'll also pull from Luke. There are some good parallels in Luke about these things. So we'll pull from that. We'll pull from the Old Testament and Deuteronomy. We'll cover many, many, many different things. And so that's what's coming up in the following episodes. And also, as a bit of a side note, I am keeping these episodes a little shorter than I used to. I used to do roughly hour-long episodes, and there are times when we went two hours and longer. But uh, in general, I'm trying to stick closer to 30 to 40 minutes. Uh, Sometimes they've been shorter than that, and sometimes on the longer end. But uh, that is some feedback that has come up at various times that the episodes are just so long and they don't have time to sit down, listen to the whole thing, and it's a little daunting. And so uh, I have tried at times. I tried one whole season and I think I made it through half the season and went back to an hour-long episode. That's just the way it worked out. That might happen this season too. We'll see. But I am at least trying to give uh, what many would consider reasonably length episodes, especially getting into content that is more Uh, has more depth to it. There is more to think about, more to follow along with. Ideally, if people uh, will pull out, if you'll pull out your Bible and read these sections of Scripture and go through it yourself, look at some of the commentaries in your Bible and other commentaries that you have, uh, that would be very helpful for you. And uh, that does take more time. So since we are done with the temptations of Christ and I am beginning the Beatitudes, which is a whole new section, I am pretty much going to end it here. I will start with... Uh, Well, I guess I will end it with and start the next one uh, with reading the Beatitudes, the section from Matthew, as well as the section from Luke. And that way we can uh, get a feeling for what we're getting into here. So Matthew chapter 4, verse 23 through 25, and then chapter 5, verses 1 through 12. Yeshua went all over the Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing people from every kind of disease and sickness. Word of him spread throughout all Syria, and the people brought to him all who were ill, suffering from various diseases and pains, 
and those held in the power of demons, and epileptics, and paralytics, and he healed them. Huge crowds followed him from the Galilee, the ten towns, Jerusalem, Yehuda, and I'm not sure how to pronounce this, Ever Har Yarden, the Jordan, I guess. Uh, seeing the crowds, Yeshua walked up the hill. After he sat down, his Talmudim came to him, his disciples, and he began to speak. This is what he taught them. How blessed are the poor in spirit, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. How blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. How blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the land. How blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. How blessed are those who show mercy, for they will be shown mercy. How blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. How blessed are those who make peace, for they will be called sons of God. How blessed are those who are persecuted because they pursue righteousness, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. How blessed you are when people insult you and persecute you and tell all kinds of vicious lies about you because you follow me. Rejoice, be glad, because your reward in heaven is great. They persecuted the prophets before you in the same way. Now, there is another account that I was referencing earlier in Luke of Yeshua preaching on these themes. Some view this as reporting the same sermon, while most scholars view the Luke account as a separate sermon on the same themes. Often they are referred to as the Sermon on the Mount, which is what I just read, and the Sermon on the Plain, respectively. Either way, they both begin with Yeshua preaching the Beatitudes, so the Luke account is definitely a helpful helpful addition here. Now, this is... uh, do the Luke account here because it's basically saying the same thing here. Uh, it was around, and oh, sorry, this is Luke chapter 6, verses 12 through 26. And actually, I'm not going to do all that. Let's do verses 20 through 26, just for the direct parallel here. And this is Yeshua uh, speaking. He looked at his Talmudim, his disciples, and said, How blessed are you poor, for the kingdom of God is yours. How blessed are you who are hungry, for you will be filled. How blessed are you who are crying now, for you will laugh. How blessed you are when people hate you and ostracize you and insult you and denounce you as a criminal on account of the Son of Man. Be glad when that happens. Yes, dance for joy, because in heaven your reward is great, for that is just how their fathers treated the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have already had all the comfort you will get. Woe to you who are full now, for you will go hungry. Woe to you who are laughing now, for you will mourn and cry. Woe to you when people speak well of you, for that is just how their fathers treated the false prophets. So you get a little more from the Luke account, uh, but for the most part, it's the same thing. But it will help us in uh, getting a little more uh, detail out of these things. Uh, The... The Beatitudes can be taken many ways, and they have been uh, taught many different ways, and often those are complete opposites. Uh, For example, uh, blessed are those who mourn. Does that mean that uh, people who are currently sad, those are the ones that are blessed and they will be comforted? Or does that mean that we uh, we are to mourn? We are to Uh, mourn over our sin, over the evil in the world, and we are to become mourners, and we will be comforted. 
uh, uh, it could go either way. Is it the ones who are already mourning? Is it that we should mourn? Um, and uh, yeah, there are ways of saying that it's good, that it's bad, and all of it is uh, a legitimate interpretation of these verses. And so um, it, it does help some using the Luke account. For example, when it says, uh, blessed are those who are poor in spirit, and it says the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Uh, a lot of people teach and preach that uh, being poor in spirit has nothing to do with your economic status, which in some ways, sure. But at the same time, look at the Luke account. Woe to you who are rich, for you have already had all the comfort you will get. And so there, there is this direct parallel of economic status, uh, which can be taken both in that direct, uh, more physical, tangible, material way, or it can be taken in a spiritual way, and it can go both ways. There's also uh, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, then in the Luke account, woe to you who are full now, for you will grow hungry, or you will go hungry. Um, Yeah, there's some direct aspects in Luke where he is talking on a more material level, Whereas in Matthew, it seems to be taking a slightly more spiritual level. And the reality is that every single one of these can be taken both ways. And it can be taken not only both ways, but it can be taken uh, more directly for what it says as, as, as though it's talking of people that are already in this condition. It can also be taken as we are to try to seek to be in this position And from both of those perspectives, it can be taken on a material level or a spiritual level. So when you look at all those different options, that's four different ways to take every single one of these lines. And and yeah, it gets a little interesting here. So I'm going to try to cover all of this as I go through that. But that's just an example of of why I'm saying that it's going to take a while to get through the Sermon on the Mount. Um, And uh, it's kind of the same way for a lot of the Sermon on the Mount. When you get into salt and light, the city on a hill, uh, these things that are directly following the Beatitudes, as well as getting into, uh, you have heard it said, but I say to you, and he's talking about the law. And uh, with all of these things, there's all these different interpretations, lots of different ways that people take this. I have read dozens of commentaries on uh, these sections of scripture. I have dug into the Sermon on the Mount uh, with a a lot of intensity and spent a lot of time on it. And the, the, the real thing is that that these can be taken many different ways legitimately. Uh, scripture often is saying more than one thing with one thing. So there'll be one story or one line or uh, one uh, poem or one section of scripture that is saying something clearly, but it's also saying something on a spiritual level. And it's also saying something on a prophetic level. And it's also saying something on a level of commentary on something else in scripture. It's just, uh, that's the beauty of scripture is it, it says so many different things each time it says only one thing. And, uh, and so what I'm going to try to do is get into all these so many different things uh, while still focusing on the only one thing, if that makes sense. Hopefully it does. And so uh, that's kind of how I'll approach this. Again, there are so many different commentaries, and uh, at times, some of them will contradict each other. So it's like one commentator will say, oh, well, this means X, Y, Z. And another commentator will say, oh, this means A, B, C. And they're talking about the exact same verse, but two totally different interpretations of it. But the really cool thing is that looking at it, at least from the perspective that we are doing for this show, um, 
as as I get to the point of whatever that section was, uh, the point will be the final point for both of those commentators. Both of those commentators would agree with the end point. So even though they start from one section of verses and one goes right and one goes left, they both end up coming back together in the middle. And that is the point of my commentary here is whatever that point is at the middle. Um, But I will also bring in those sidetracks to the left, to the right, straight ahead, wherever they go, and try to bring in these other perspectives, these other commentaries, and um, uh, tie all of them together so you can get a broad view of many different ways you can take each one of these sets of scripture and then bring all that back to the core point for each set of scripture. So that's what we will start digging into uh, in the next episode, I guess two weeks from now. And I am personally very excited to get into the Sermon on the Mount, one of my favorite sections in the entire Bible. So if you have any questions, any comments, any concerns, any requests, please feel free to reach out to me. Easiest way is our foundations at protonmail.com through email. But also you can reach out on Twitter at foundationspc or who knows how else. I'm sure you can find other ways. Uh, So if you want to, then do that. There is also the Patreon page. And if you want to support this show and basically pay for me doing this show so I don't have to pay for it myself, you can join the others who do because currently they do. I don't have to pay for the hosting fees and the equipment and that kind of thing because wonderful supporters who are out there are supporting the show and paying for it themselves because they believe that the message that is getting... Uh, spoken here and that is reaching many different people has value and merit and that it should be supported so if you want to join their ranks please feel free to do so there's a link to the patreon page or you can probably just search on patreon for it and find it and that would be greatly appreciated thank you very much to all of you who do support financially that way thank you also to those who have left ratings and reviews that's extremely helpful as well and thank you for just being a listener that's the whole point of this show and uh, uh, having listeners and subscribers is another way of uh, getting it out there to more people because it uh, yeah, plays all the agri- algorithms and the AIs and all those things that uh, track how many people are listening, how many people are downloading, how many people are subscribed, how many reviews are there. All those different things go into uh, a podcast getting out there and having more reach. So thank you for all of the different ways that you support this show. I greatly appreciate it. I am out and I will be back next time. Peace. This has been our Foundations Podcast. Goodbye. Thank you for listening. Goodbye. (laughs) Bye-bye.